primary care knowledge boost, infant feeding. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we have a really lovely episode for you all about infant feeding. We enlisted Dr Christos Zipidis, who is a paediatrician at Wigan, to talk to us. Um, we both worked with him as trainees and very much enjoyed his teaching. Yeah, we have very fond memories of his teaching. He talks us through how to generally approach feeding issues in babies. He talks us through the red flags to watch out for and then systematically goes through colic, gastroesophageal reflux disease, lactose intolerance and cow's milk protein allergy. And then we also touch um, a little bit on Icon, um, a new resource for supporting parents with babies who cry. Yeah, so just a note on the discussion that we have about cow's milk protein allergy. Um, We don't talk in the discussion about um, managing breastfed babies. So uh, after we talked, we then contacted Christos to ask. So he's explained it a little bit more. um, And in the discussion, you'll hear that we, we talk about how cow's milk protein allergy, true cow's milk protein allergy is quite rare. And you can get minute quantities of cow's milk protein secreted in breast milk. Technically, you can have babies with cow's milk protein allergy that do show this when they're breastfed. But that is extremely rare. So it's cow's milk protein allergy is rare and then breastfed babies with cow's milk protein allergy is even rarer, essentially. So his advice is, so if the baby is um, having mixed feeding, so both breast milk and formula, breast milk is a good treatment for milder forms of cow's milk protein allergy. Uh, So a a good plan for those mixed fed children might be to go exclusively breastfed. Yep, and then for exclusively breastfed babies with potential symptoms of cow's milk protein allergy, then it is reasonable to try mum on a dairy-free diet um, over three to four weeks to see whether or not this causes a sustained improvement. Um, And then to check the diagnosis, you would then challenge the baby by reintroducing dairy to mum's diet three to four weeks later to see if the symptoms return. Um, And that's in the milk allergy in primary care guideline, um, which we'll put a link to in the episode description. Um, he did say he would encourage breastfeeding and refer the mother to a dietitian so that she doesn't become calcium or vitamin deficient. Yeah, and then he also explained about um, advice for when breastfed babies are then weaning. So for those babies who've had pathognomonic cow's milk protein allergy symptoms, such as blood in the stool, which again is really uncommon, he'd recommend an amino acid milk. Uh, but for babies where the diagnosis has been less clear-cut, he suggested extensively hydrolyzed milk first because it has the advantage of tasting better than amino acid milks, uh, as well as making sure that the family have a dietitian referral once the diagnosis has been established. Grand. So, so that's the rest of it. <laughs> we hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Can you introduce yourselves to the listeners and tell us a bit about yourself? bit of background. Sure. So uh, my name is Christos Zividis. I'm a consultant pediatrician and lead for the neonatal unit in Wigan. Um, I've been in Wigan for the last 11 years and I do the baby clinics in Wigan as well. Because we've been, we were trainees in Wigan, so we were under your care, under your guidance and teaching. <laughs> I hope I've taught you something. <laughs> well, we'll feign ignorance for this chat. It's it's feigned, honestly. <laughs> um, and we chose infant feeding because it's often very tricky in general practice, and it's a very com- common problem. Um, so if we start with a kind of anonymous standard presentation, and then work through the potential diagnoses after that, if that's all right. Sure. 
So the case is a mum. Um, she's had her first child two months ago. Uh, it was a term baby, normal vaginal delivery, and it was an uncomplicated pregnancy. So she's been trying to breastfeed and she's worried about how the baby's feeding. She's not convinced it's going very well. Um, so just starting with that bit of history, what are the important points from the history that we need to ascertain? So I, I think we need to get into um, understanding mum's perspective a bit in a bit more detail to begin with. So is this a long-term problem? So the baby's two months old, we said. And is this a more recent thing? Because clearly, if it's a more recent thing, it raises concerns. Is this an acute illness that we are facing, for example? Yeah. Um, um, or is this a more longer-term thing? Is it, is it a more longer-term thing? Uh, you know, is the baby growing? Is it gaining weight? And um, how is the baby in general? Yeah. And if it's a more acute thing, then you need to be thinking, is this an acutely unwell child? So, for example, have we got temperature? Is the baby waking up for feeds? Uh, what's the baby's color? Are they pale? And have they got any rashes? Have they got any temperature? Is the fontanelle raised? Um, have we got any fears of dehydration because, for example, the baby is developing uh, pyloric stenosis? So, so these are the immediate things that have to come into play. Now, if this is a more longer-term thing, so mom is not quite happy that the baby is feeding enough, again, as I said uh, previously, are we growing well enough? And, and what are the concerns that mom has? So is the baby vomiting? Are they coming up with any rashes? Is it that they're, they're passing too much stool? Have they got diarrhea? Have they got blood in the stool? And so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So I think we, we need to delve into the history in, in, in more detail to see exactly where this will take us. And more often than not, the history will guide us to, you know, generally the right diagnosis. Brilliant. So whenever we've got something um, like this, what are the, the big red flag conditions, the big red flag symptoms that um, us in primary care need to be thinking about excluding straight away? So um, if we're thinking about an acutely unwell child, as, as I mentioned uh, before, what are we concerned about? Is this a child who's got uh, who's pale, who's breathing really fast, not feeding well, has got a temperature, either high or low temperature, by the way, can be a sign of sepsis in a, in a, a young baby. Mm -hmm. And are they, not, are they not handling well, not waking well? Have they got any rashes, particularly not blanching rashes on them? Is the fontanelle raised? Do they look like they're dehydrated, not passing enough urine? Or having crystals in the urine, which may sometimes present as blood in the in, in the in the urine, but it's not as crystals. Mm. Um, or, or if we've got blood in the stool, are they bleeding from anywhere else? Or all these are, are sort of red flag signs that we need to be thinking: this baby needs to be seen imminently. Mm. It's not something that we can sit on. Grand, and I guess in the in this current climate with COVID, um, a lot of the consultations are being done remotely. So there's a lot of triage kind of going on about who we should be seeing in person and who we should be examining. So obviously, all of those patients that you've described, any of those symptoms, would need to be seen in person. Is there anybody else that you would think about bringing down to examine? So um, a, a child that is not waking as well as they were doing before, or the parents are describing as uh, lethargic, not feeding well especially in these younger ages. So a history of a child crying a lot and then um, maybe not being as responsive as before might sort of indicate, or if they're describing any marks on them, or again, a raised fontanelle, might indicate that this child has suffered some, some sort of um, shaking episode or 
uh, safeguarding concerns. Mm -hmm. So again, um, you guys will probably have a bit more history into the family dynamics than we do in, in the hospital. So this would be a good place to bring everything together and say, actually, I'm a bit worried about this child. He's not growing well. He's been crying for a while. Have we got some other problem to think about? So this category is another one that we need to be thinking, mm, this is a, a child that I need to be seeing quite quite briskly. Yeah. So we thought we'd go off now and branch off to the potential diagnoses. Um, and if we start with um, one of the most common ones, which, which is colic. But first of all, what, what is colic? When we, when we talk about colic, what are we talking about? It's, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not sure I've got the answer for it. And <laughs> certainly I'm not, I'm not sure I can really definitively distinguish what we call colic from what is normal crying. Um, in general, colic is the frequent, prolonged, and intense crying or fussiness in an otherwise healthy baby. Mm -hmm. And so, so from, from I think from now on, we should assume that this is not an acutely unwell child. is is a child that is otherwise healthy because otherwise none of this makes makes sense. And from experience, I think the parents, the, the children who've got colic, the parents describe them as getting progressively worse through the day and during the evening time they're at their worst. Okay. Uh, for me that is a good sign that this what we're dealing with is colic rather than anything mm. anything else. That witching hour. Yes. <laughs> and what pointers, I mean you, you mentioned there about that progression being a pointer in the history, anything else sort of in the history or the examination that would lead you towards that diagnosis? Is it more like of an, a diagnosis of exclusion? It is really because uh, again you're looking to rule things out, and um, in general, you know, it, this is not a child that will have uh, symptoms that will be consistent with gastroesophageal reflux or cowsbill protein intolerance or um, any any of the other things that we're going to talk about uh, later on. So I think you're thinking about the other diagnosis, but if those don't quite make sense, this is. Um, one that maybe does make sense. Now, whether you call it colic or whether you call it as part of the normal crying that babies get is a different question. But I think it's always uh, important, and, and you guys, if you sat in clinic with me, I always do this. When you're describing the differential diagnosis to the parents, it is absolutely important to tell them about things like this so that they know that it could be that the child is crying on the extreme end of what is normal, but it's still part of the normal. So the management of expectations from the parent's point of view is, is as important as finding what the correct diagnosis is, because there might not be a diagnosis. And, and as, we'll, as we go through this today, we'll see that the majority of them are, are diagnosis of exclusion or trial and error rather than, oh, yes, I've done this test. It's definitely this, you know, we know how to cure it now. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of the epitome of general practice as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So once we have kind of established that it is colic or within that range, how would you manage them? So so colic is thought to, well, we don't really know how it's, how it's caused, but one of the proposed mechanisms is trapped wind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can, you can change uh, the teeth if you're using infant formula. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can use more winding of the child. You can use things like infacol to see if they if they help. And, and it's it's variable success. This, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, from personal experience, I've got two sons. One one of them, he loved it. He could drink the whole bottle, but he wouldn't do anything for him. <laughs> the other one, uh, he couldn't stand it. But actually, 
just giving him he settled down completely so you're not gonna you don't know how how things are how children are going to react unless you try that yeah so lots of trial and error options and that's worth a lot of advice around parents yes and and, and these are these are um treatments that the parents can access themselves um, you can they can take these products in supermarkets so they don't they don't need prescriptions for those so this is you know this would be a good phone consultation giving some advice once you've excluded all the other things that i'm sure will come up as we go along yeah um so if we um go on like you said to some of these other bits so if we if we talk about um gastroesophageal reflux um next what are we looking for in a history um or examination that might point us to that as the diagnosis so so reflux is, is the movement of the stomach contents up into the esophagus, sometimes all the way up into the mouth and, and out from the mouth to be expelled as a, as a vomitus on occasion, but not necessarily all the time. And it is a very common problem. I, I would actually call it physiological because of the distance between the mouth, if you like, and the esophagus is so much shorter. The babies are flat on their back, so gravity, if you something obviously pulls things down, Whereas if you're lying down, it doesn't help. The diet is liquid, so it's a lot easier for things to move from the stomach into the mouth. Um, and, and all the muscles and sphincters are not as well developed. So, so this is a very common issue. So the fact that somebody is vomiting doesn't necessarily mean that they've got reflux disease. And we should be trying to distinguish between physiological gastroesophageal reflux, which will settle on its own, doesn't need anything, mm-hmm. Again, it's about reassuring the parents and there is gastroesophageal reflux disease, which we might have to help the child with a graduated sort of a, a treatment plan and depending on their symptoms. So, so what were we looking for? We're looking for vomiting, as we said, but it's not universal. So you can have silent reflux. You can have silent reflux disease. So the fact that you're not vomiting doesn't mean that you haven't got gastroesophageal reflux. And from all the things we're going to discuss today, this is by far the most common. So it, it makes sense to consider it as, if you like, the primary diagnosis to begin with, especially if you haven't got any of the pointers that would point towards um, cosmic protein allergy or lactose intolerance. Okay. Um, it, it, does the child have irritability during feeds? Do we have hiccups of what the parents sometimes call wet, wet burps? Mm-hmm. Um, arching of the back. Uh, Sandifer syndrome is, is quite a good one uh, to go for uh, gagging or choking, disturbed sleep, the heartburn. And, and, and this is obviously the child is not going to tell you that they've got heartburn. But if they've got this prolonged crying feeds with the arching of the back, the parents telling you every time I try and put them down, they scream the place down. Um, failure to gain weight. These, these are pointers towards um, reflux disease rather than physiological symptoms. So this is the child that I would like us to to help rather than the the one who's just vomiting, but actually is on the 95th centile where it was born on the 50th. So it's really thriving. That, that child doesn't really need treatment provided they haven't got any of the other things we've just, we've just described. So it's about reassuring the parents and, and explaining to them that the treatments that we use to treat this actually come with their own problems as well. Yeah. Um, so, so sometimes you're trying to solve one thing and you're creating three other problems. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So I guess um, if, you, if you've had that, um, that initial discussion, you've done the history examination, you've ruled out the red flags like we talked at the very beginning, um, and you're fairly happy that it's fitting into gastroesophageal reflux disease rather than just the physiological. Um, how would you go about managing those babies? 
So, so I think I think we we should uh, adopt a sort of um, a stepwise approach, but obviously it depends on the extent of the child's symptoms. So the first step will be trial of mechanical measures, for example, raising the cot on one side. So you are effectively manipulating gravity to help you uh, along what you're trying to do. If I'm honest, that doesn't work very often, and and most parents will have tried that before they come to us. Now, keep in mind that I see a a select population of babies because uh, you guys will have seen a lot of them before they come to us. Uh, So maybe I'm seeing the extreme end of things rather than the, the, the usual ones. The next step would be to maybe add some thickeners. Okay. Uh, in my experience, the easier thing to do, the easiest thing to do, is to ask parents. So, especially if their child is bottle fed, is, is formula fed, to try a commercially available anti-reflux formula, because then they don't have to think about adding st- things in and have they added enough, have they added too much, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. A- and also. Again, from experience, it is less likely that this will cause constipation because the problem with things like Gaviscon is that it tends to make infants constipated and then you have to treat the constipation. So you're sorting one problem which might not really be a major problem but creating something which is a major problem because the child is crying more from the constipation than they did from the gastroesophageal reflux on most occasions rather than reflux disease. there are other thickeners out there, things like carobel, and you can titrate that so that there is on the packet it tells you how much to add to make it more and more concentrated. One thing to say is that we shouldn't be adding multiple thickeners in a feed. Uh, I act as a reviewer in many pediatric journals, and it is not uncommon to get case reports of children who have you know, there are anti-reflux milk and also putting Gaviscon and maybe something else on top of that. And it solidifies in their uh, gastrointestinal symptom, causing obstruction, needing surgery, even removal of bowel. So this is this is a common thing that uh, I see certainly on the literature front. So we should, if, we, if we're using anti-reflux milk, stick to that. If we're using Gaviscon, stick to that. Do not add a mix different thickeners there. The step after that would be something like um, a histamine antagonist like ranitidine. Now, you'll all be aware that we haven't had ranitidine for some time. I think there's a production problem. Yeah. It tends to work fairly well, uh, ranitidine, in my experience. Uh, but for, for those babies that it didn't work, uh, we cannot or, or exchange it. I only use one, to be honest, for a proton pump inhibitor like omeprazole. Um, Again, there are different formulations, different uh, medication out there that can be used. There's liquid forms, there is um, tablets. I, I tend to not use the liquid forms because this, the tablets work fairly well, especially if the child hasn't been on a liquid form before. It's the ease that the parents are after rather than the fact that it works better than the, than the tablet. Uh, in fact, our pediatric pharmacist has, over the last few weeks, has produced a guide as to how to manage um, proton pump inhibitors and, and which ones you should give the liquid form, which ones you should give the uh, tablets and how much you should give, which tablet to mm. give. And, and that might be a good one to actually to share with you guys. I, I, I did actually ask you to share with colleagues in primary care because I think if you're introducing something like that, it's always much more powerful if it's for, for the whole health economy rather than just for the hospital. And if I see a child who's already on a liquid form of omeprazole, it's extremely difficult to convince those parents that actually the tablet form is better. Now, 
The benefits, obviously, there is a significant cost reduction if you're using the tablets versus the medicine. But it's also, and I didn't know this until very recently, there's a very high amount of sodium benzoid in the liquid form, mm. which can be detrimental to the child. All, all of these medicines come with their own side effects. We know that if you take this stomach acid away using ranitidine or omeprazole, then that predisposes you to getting gastrointestinal infections uh, because you've lost the barrier that the acid creates there. Yeah. Um, population studies show that children or adults for that matter who are using uh, ranitidine or omeprazole are more likely to have chest infections and more likely to have gastrointestinal infections. And there is also a notion in the literature that maybe, maybe that can predispose you to having a higher chances of developing cancer later on in life. Okay. And now, the studies talk about long-term use, and I'll be honest, I don't know what that means. Is it years? How many years? Is it months? How many months? It doesn't specify, but certainly that is out there in the literature. Mm. That makes it quite tricky talking a parent through the kind of potential side effects. What would your general advice be if you're thinking about starting a proton pump inhibitor? So I, I think that actually it makes your life a bit easier if you if you mention those things. Because parents want their child to stop vomiting. But the vomiting on its own is not necessarily something that is going to cause the damage. But if we are now introducing the potential of causing cancer later on in life, in a child who's only vomiting, hasn't got anything more significant, not many parents will choose to have that for their child, as long as the child is reasonably well. As they grow longer, more upright, they go on to solid food, it will settle down. It is really rare, even for the children who are on omeprazole, to go on needing that beyond the first year, certainly the second year of life. Very rare. Yeah. So that's a physiological process. They, they get better as time goes on. So as long as we haven't got the you know the, the red flag signs like uh, losing weight, uh, we're in extreme pain, and I think I think we should be fairly pushy in not medicalizing what looks like a physiological process. And even after we've started that, we should be fairly pushy in removing the medicine, you know, because we know that it causes so many side effects. It's a good time to sort of um, uh, introduce the concept of trying them off the medicine that they've been on for so many weeks. I find that for the children who've got proper reflux disease, good times to try them off are when they're sitting up, again, gravity, not because we've done anything miraculous, and the fact that they're more likely to be on two solids then, so around six, seven months of life. Again, try it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But be clear what doesn't work means. The fact that they're vomiting doesn't mean that it, doesn't work, that it hasn't worked. Is the fact is the return of the previous symptoms that have made you think that this is reflux disease rather than just reflux. Yeah. And if that doesn't work, overwhelmingly in my experience, at one year of age, when they're standing up, they come off. Yeah. You mentioned about the thickeners there that you add into uh, formula milk. Is there any kind of thickener that you, that breastfeeding women can use? So all, all of the thickeners can actually be used for breastfed children okay. as well. So, so for example, Gaviscon, you can dissolve that in a bit of boiled cold water um, some express milk yeah. or I mean I, I, I don't want to sort of uh, suggest that this is a good way but you know you can dissolve it in a bit of formula milk as well but I think express milk and cool boy water would do the trick so so yes they can be used for breastfed uh, babies okay. as well um, 
So some of the other um, potential differential diagnoses in these babies can be cow's milk protein um, issues and lactose intolerance. Um, so have you got any tips about how we can tell if it's um, the gastroesophageal reflux disease or the lactose intolerance or the cow's milk protein? Okay, so so if we if we move down to the lactose intolerance then uh, first, um, so we've got a congenital lactose intolerance. So this is the congenital absence of the enzyme. This is extremely rare. I've never seen one, and I probably never will see one. And I, I, I've read about it in case reports. So these children who present with significant diarrhea, they're not growing, they're really unwell. So you would know that something is not right. Okay. So, so I think we can put that to one side. And then we've got primary lactose intolerance and secondary lactose intolerance. And primary lactose intolerance is the relative deficiency, if you like, of the of the enzyme, and it tends to happen more as we grow older. So really not quite relevant for the diagnosis that we're thinking about at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the secondary lactose intolerance, we do see. So secondary, it can be secondary to the most common one is gastroenteritis. So a family comes in and they tell you that they've had this diarrhea for the last three months mm-hmm. or two months. Yeah, it started two months ago and maybe it was preceded by having the vaccination of the child. Because remember, we're giving a vaccine that makes them have or protects them from diarrhea, but it can also cause diarrhea. And it's not uncommon to have a period of lactose intolerance following that vaccine, by the way. So if you've got this clear history, and maybe other other family members have had a bit of gastroenteritis as well, but not as severe, and the diarrhea continues, then you have to consider the possibility that this is a lactose intolerance, secondary lactose intolerance. It will get better. If baby is breastfed, I suggest that you don't do anything. Just encourage them to carry on breastfeeding. It will get better. Um, If the baby is formula fed, it probably makes sense to um, do a trial of lactose-free milk. Again, these milks, the parents can get them from the normal place that they buy their formulas, you don't need to do a prescription. In fact, they're not a prescription milk. Um, so so it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way to give it a, a go. If it settles down, brilliant, continue it for a few weeks. And again, it's a trial and error. You keep introducing the normal formula back to see if it has settled down or not. It will settle, settle down, but we don't know how long it will take. And again, it's good to explain to parents why that happens. So you've, you've get, an, get an infection agent causes gastroenteritis, the inside of the bowel is injured. So the villi inside the bowel are shorter. So you've got smaller surface area on which the uh, enzyme, the lactase, can break down uh, the lactose. So you've got more of the substrate going further down Mm -hmm. the bowel, which can cause the, the bacterial overgrowth, which then as they break down that, it causes gas, which causes distension. And because of the increased sugar load, it causes diarrhea. So, so it's, it's a simple thing to appreciate and explain to parents. And actually, when you've, you've done that and you've treated it and it works, you know, the, you, are, you are God. You've, you've got it. <laughs> they trust you for life after <laughs> that. And it, it's, it's a fairly simple thing. Yeah. Now, one, one thing that I think um, we should talk about is this stool reducing substances because I see a lot of these tests being sent off and they're completely useless, <laughs> completely and utterly useless. So I, I stopped doing them probably about eight or nine years ago. So in the past, the, the tests were not as sensitive as they are in the last 
certainly in the last five or six years. I mean, you guys must have sent some of those back. Have you ever seen one which is negative? <laughs> no, they're all positive. Now, the, the test is only useful if it's negative because the negative predictive value of the test is very high. And so if it's negative, it tells you we haven't got lactose intolerance. If it's positive, it's, it doesn't tell you anything. So the positive, the positive predictive value of the test is rubbish. So if it's positive, it doesn't mean anything. So why send off a test that takes a month to come back and it will always be positive? I promise you, it will be positive. I definitely remember so it, this. It, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot kinder for for you and the family and the, definitely the child to do a trial of lactose-free yeah. milk if you think that this is a possibility, yeah. rather than send the test off and wait for a month. By the time the test come back, you have a definitive answer. Yeah. Yeah. And moving on to to um, cow's milk protein allergy. Yeah. Um, so th th this is now, I think, what we need to be thinking when you've got a, a history that potentially could be cow's milk protein allergy. And, and it can be tricky because sometimes you haven't got pathognomonic features. So if you've got a child who was on breast milk, they were absolutely fine. Then they move on to formula milk and they start being uh, unsettled, screaming the place down, vomiting, having loose stools with blood in it. I think the diagnosis there is pretty clear cut, but it's not often that you get a diagnosis in a history like that. Often you get a child that is vomiting. So is he vomiting because he's got reflux? Is he vomiting because he's got cow's milk protein allergy? It's, it's difficult to distinguish those. I think in a child who is otherwise settled, I wouldn't necessarily go down the route of cow's milk protein allergy. Remember, it is rare. Um, I mean, we tend to diagnose more and more of the children, but I'm not sure that we're actually treating an illness rather than treating the concerns of the parents in a medicalized way. Mm -hmm. So we're medicalizing the normal crying of the baby, the normal acceptableness of the baby, and trying to, to help them out in an attempt. I'm, I'm not criticizing people, it's in an, in an attempt. So they're doing it from pure um, instincts and wishes to help the mm -hmm. family. It, it, it has got consequences. So if you think that the child has got cow's milk protein allergy, clearly that child it's not going to be treated for a month or so and then stop. It's going to be treated for a, at least a year. So it's got, it's got consequences of how the family is going to make solid food later on in life, what diet the baby is going to follow. Yeah. But the, the initial thought has to be, is this an, an IgE-mediated reaction or a non-IgE-mediated reaction? So if we've got things in the history, um, quick onset itchiness, erythema, you get uh, urticaria rashes or uh, angioedema, so swelling, basically, of, of the lips, the tongue, uh, the eyelids. If you get eczema, which is worsening, the vomiting we've already mentioned, and, and loose stools, th th these are signs suggestive of an IgE-mediated reaction. And th that is even rarer than cow's milk protein allergy. So in, in, in my clinics, and, and you know, I'll be surprised if I find more than a couple a year that have got a proper IgE-mediated reaction. So those babies that have got, you know, display those symptoms and their moms give me a good history and I see the pictures sometimes, I would do um, skin prick tests, sometimes IgE, rust tests. And if those come back positive, that child needs to be managed as an IgE-mediated IgE cosmic protein allergy. And those ones I refer on to the allergy clinic. The rest, the non-IgE-mediated ones, um, all you need to do is decide on appropriate milk. And again, it depends on the symptoms. So if they're severe, you go with an amino acid milk, 
If it's uh, less severe, you go with an extensively hydrolyzed milk. In, in my practice, if I think that the child has got Ig-mediated responses, I will always treat with an amino acid formula, okay. and 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 it tends and it tends to work well. And again, this is a minefield. There are so many milks out there, and 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 it, and it can be pretty hard. And um, again, if you've started my clinic, my biggest bugbear is when I get a baby who's about six months of age is on a PPI. And neutramigen. The request says, uh, please help us to find out the diagnosis. So, so we're basically treating all three of the things we've talked about now. Yeah. So we're giving a PPI for reflux. Neutramigen is a lactose-free milk and also an extensively hydrolyzed milk. So which one of the three <laughs> is, is relevant to what we're doing? And, and often it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to make the, introduce something, make the child unwell to find out what works. Yeah. Which is not not the best not the best way of doing things. Uh, so I, again, it's about managing expectations. If we can discuss all these differentials with the parents uh, and make them realize that you know if the symptoms are generic vomiting, for example, we think it's a reflux disease, maybe the first thing to try is something on the reflux um, point of view. But we also have to be a bit cunning. So if if we if, if the child is five months old and they've had these symptoms all the way. And in a month's time, the child is going to go on to solids. Maybe this is the time to think about doing a, a milk exclusion diet. So if you want to do a special milk, now is the time to do it. Because once you get onto solids, it becomes even harder to delineate what is and what isn't cow's milk protein allergy. Yeah, gotcha. And another, another point to mention, if we are thinking that this is a child that has got a non-IG mediated type reaction, intolerance to milk, and we started them on a an extensively hydrolyzed milk, it is certainly worthwhile doing a re-challenging re them to make sure that the symptoms return. Because sometimes, just the fact that the baby has grown older, they have settled down. It's nothing to do with the fact that we've given them the the milk. It's just pure coincidence. So, so the, the challenge actually makes sense, and it, and it will save the family a lot of hassle when it comes to doing uh, the exclusion diet later on in life. How long do you recommend sort of leaving it? What's your go-to amount of time before reintroducing a challenge? Would it depend on the severity? Um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't. There is this concept when you're changing milks, and, and certainly the babies who've got this extreme crying, you hear the parents saying that they've tried six or seven different milks, and they, they, they will always tell you the first two weeks they, they were brilliant, yeah. and then they deteriorate. So this concept in when you're changing milks of the honeymoon period, which is about two weeks um, duration. So I think anything shorter than two weeks is too short. Uh, I always try for three to four weeks. and So I, I want to make sure that we've passed that honeymoon period <laughs> and, and, and the symptoms are, ma are main, you know, if we're symptom-free, this is this improvement is maintained. I think when we've done that and we're confident that uh, the, there is an improvement there, around four weeks, three to four weeks, that's the time to, to re-challenge them. Yeah. And the re-challenge doesn't have to be you know, for a month. If they if they introduce it today and the symptoms return straight away, then you've got your answer. You don't need to wait for too long. Perfect. Um, just to just clarify in my head about um, if you're if you're sitting in primary care and you and you really do think that it is cow's milk protein, um, if it's IgE mediated, then we should um, put them on the the correct milk and refer to allergy clinic. And then if it's yes. non IgE mediated. Put them on the milk. Potentially try the challenge. If that does look like that's the the cause of it, is that when we refer to dietitians because they're going to have to do a milk ladder? 
So, so I would I would wait if you're going to rechallenge them. I would wait to do the rechallenge, so that you 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 confirm you're confident that that's the right diagnosis. So, if they if they might not get better, a with the milk, which then points to them, you know, it might not be the right diagnosis. Uh, if they get better and 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 then they are better even after you take them off the milk, well, it was something different. Settle down. You don't need to worry about it. But if you if they've got better. You've challenged them, they become worse, and then you've started the milk again. I think that that's the time to refer them to the dietitian. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, that's really helpful. <laughs> Good question, Lisa. Thanks. <laughs> um, so thinking in general now about helping families cope through these circumstances, crying babies, and that recently um, with this COVID pandemic, there's been some recent sharing of resources to help fam- families and healthcare professionals cope with crying babies. Um because there has been an in- increase in shaking babies. And there's a resource called ICON. Um, can you talk us through a bit more about those types of, sort of support for families? Sure. So uh, as you've alluded to, um, research suggests that the persistent crying in babies can be a trigger for some parents or carers to lose control and shake their babies. So ICON is a program that provides information about infant crying and how to cope with that. And its main aim, as you uh, as you said, is to prevent abusive head injury. Okay. Uh, ICON is, a, is, a, is an acronym. I stands for infant crying is normal. So it, it gives information about the fact that from two weeks onwards, infants can start to cry more. It peaks around six to eight weeks, and then it comes it comes down. Uh, it's interesting this because if we if you think about what we we're saying about colicky pain before. Mm-hmm. That's the same things that we say, you know, when the normal pattern appears. So this is what I said. It was it's different. It's difficult to distinguish what is normal crying and what is abnormal mm-hmm. crying. And, it, and in this graph, it actually has, you know, babies who cry a bit, babies who cry an intermediate amount, and babies who cry a lot. And, and actually the number of hours in a day that that can go up to is significantly different in each category. So, you know, crying six, seven hours can be normal in a baby at six to eight weeks. And, and it's just educating parents in the first stage to realize that that's the case. And C starts for comforting methods can help. And, and there are some short videos on the website, actually, which um, take parents through some comforting methods, like um, playing music to the baby, singing to them, holding them, rocking them maybe, rocking, not shaking, very important, taking them out for a walk. Oh is to say that it's okay to walk away. And there's a very powerful video actually on the website, which is which is brilliant. It's a dad who's been working all night, comes at home, his wife is off sick, probably with COVID in the current climate. You know, he wants to go to sleep because he's been up all night and the baby's just continuously crying. And, and there is a point where dad loses it and he becomes really upset. And, and, you know, once you've established that the child is not unwell, and we've talked about what an unwell baby uh, will display, and they've been changed, they've been fed. Once you've done all this, the baby's safe, you may be crying. It's okay to walk away from it. Take, take your time, you know, have a cup of tea, talk to somebody else. So find something that works for you to calm you down. It's okay to step away once you've made sure that the child is safe. And the N stands for never, ever shake the baby. So in this document, in this document, in the literature in the website, it actually talks about one in six of the CNS trauma cases are down to uh, shaken babies, which is quite significant, really. So anything we can do to raise awareness and, and prevent even a single baby from being shaken is worthwhile. 
Yeah, great. And we can share those resources in our um, episode description for everybody as well. Um, and then I guess we're, we're, um, at the end of our chat today and we usually ask at the end for, um, your, your take home points, the bits that you want the listeners to remember the, the most from the discussion we've had today. We, we have to be honest, distinguishing between the differential diagnosis that we've talked about here can be tricky because there is a lot of overlap. It's not, it's not always as clear cut. There are some things that point to one or the other diagnosis that we talked about, blood in the stool, for example, being more towards a cow's milk protein allergy, uh, the severe diarrhea pointing more towards a lactose intolerance, the, the continuous vomiting pointing more towards reflux. Please refrain from sending stool reducing substances. <laughs> and and I, I, think, I think that that's it. It can, be, it can be very difficult to find a milk that is appropriate. Again, I think we should go as a health economy. For example, I know that the trust has got a specific, a specific a particular deals with companies, which means that they get the milk at a significantly discounted rates. So if we could come up with a plan as a health economy and we can do the same thing, clearly that would be useful for everybody. And in and, and the end of the day, any money that we save on one area can be used somewhere else. So it's always a worthwhile uh, option. But there are millions of milks out there. Probably not many, but many. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Christos. So this has been an excellent episode. We really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it, actually. Well, wasn't that just lovely? <laughs> um, what did you take away, Sarah? Yeah, it was absolutely lovely. I think we were both really happy to get this discussion because um, even though, you know, you've, you've been through the training and you're kind of, you're treating... Uh, children with it it's so easy when you're seeing the very gray area cases to get very confused nothing presents as it does in the textbooks um so sort of actually going through yeah. how common things are and a more systematic approach to trialing treatment um, was really really useful um there's loads of things that i got from that i think going through what is colic um oh my gosh. Was, <laughs> was really useful <laughs> straight off the bat kind of just understanding about colic and um, what it is and kind of having the tools to be able to tell parents about what it is as well yeah uh, yeah with colic I, I, I just think it's so important that framing of in a healthy baby mm-hmm. then all the colic stuff applies and just the fact that it's it's a it's a potentially a variant of normal um which yeah. was just yeah very interesting in the way that you talk that through with parents um, and then I also thought it was really interesting the chat about um, gastroesophageal reflux and gastroesophageal reflux disease. Yeah. Um, and and just the fact that again a lot of that is physiological, um, and and trying not to medicalize um, children in that way is just quite interesting yeah. take. Oh yeah, and just um, really interesting talk about not starting everything um, all at once. So don't do the milk and the um, the, the PPI at the same time. Yeah. Um, and then in fact just all of this chat around PPI. Um, was quite interesting because yeah. um, it is quite a nuanced topic and it and it sometimes is very hard to have those discussions um, and to and to know what's the right thing to do because you you want to try and help and you want to treat but you don't want to over give treatments that can potentially have side effects and mm-hmm. um, it, it is a very hard decision to make sometimes yeah so if you'd like to get in touch you can do there's a survey um, option which we have which is a survey monkey link that's on our episode description which you can fill in and it's anonymous and we love getting those um, or we have a gmail account which is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and you can always find us on twitter at pckbpodcast 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, just to reiterate what Sarah said, thank you so much to everybody who does um, get in touch with us and give us feedback. And we just like your chats and we like um, knowing what's happening out there with the listeners and, and, and if you're liking what we're doing. So please keep keep doing that. <laughs> Till next time. On Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.